Well, if you look in your bulletin, you see that we're still in the book of Exodus, and it's not a typo. We're covering chapters 7 through 10, four chapters in one sermon. I know some of you are like, oh my gosh, this could get really long. I might miss the game. Um, I'm only going to read the first five verses of chapter 7, uh, but I do. Uh, I would suggest grab the Pew Bible in front of you or open up your own Bible to Exodus chapter 7. It's on page 49 in the Pew Bible, because we're going to be looking at different things throughout uh, this sermon. Um, and what we see is in this section that, is that God sends plagues upon uh, upon the, the nation of Egypt and directed at Pharaoh as well. And the question to ask is, why did God send these plagues? Well, God had promised to deliver his people from oppression, and the people of Egypt, especially Pharaoh, were opposed to this. Their hearts were hard towards God, and they were in need of softening. Problem was, they would not soften their hearts. But in fact, their hearts only got harder. Oh, that we would respond differently. Oh, that our hearts would not be hard towards God, but they would be soft. Is your heart hard or is it soft? Let's read Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. And the Lord, it's Yahweh, said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, we want to know his will, we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, We're thankful for this word. It is a long section, but in it we see some really important truths. Help help us to um, have a time this morning in which your word softens our hearts. And where we have doubts or questions, may you answer them and alleviate them. May we be changed in this very hour uh, because you care for your people. Um, We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the sermon is titled, The Plague of a Hardened Heart. And so it might be good to define the word heart. You know, when the Bible uses the word heart, it's got a vastly different meaning than how we tend to use the word today. Today, the word heart is used to describe some level of emotionalism, as in, well, she wears her heart on her sleeve, right? But this is not the biblical use of the word. In the ancient world, the heart symbolized the inner real you. Your heart is where you reason and think. It's the place, listen, where you treasure up what is important to you in life. And from that, make decisions. That's why Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the problem we humans share is that our hearts treasure all kinds of things other than what God has made us to treasure and enjoy himself. 
This long section of plagues in Exodus helps us to address a problem we share with the original audience, which is a hardness of heart. We're all born with hearts that are turned inward on ourselves. None of us, by nature, wake up in the morning saying, Yahweh, Lord, you are worthy. Oh my gosh, Lord, this whole day, all that I do will be entirely devoted to you. I'm not saying we can't get there. My point is that we're not born with hearts turned outward towards God. We're born with hearts turned in on ourselves. Only God's grace can change that for us. Moses and Pharaoh, they depict two ways of life. Both Moses and Pharaoh began with hard hearts. But over time, Moses' heart softened, while Pharaoh's heart got harder. The plagues address the gods and idols of Egypt, and there were many. One by one, Yahweh, the Lord, who alone is God, demonstrates victory over all the gods and idols of Egypt. Now, perhaps you're here this morning and think, those people were kind of whack back then. They believed in all kinds of gods and they, they bowed before idols. I, I don't worship gods, but don't be so sure. Every human being worships either the one true God or some sort of God substitute. If you're, for instance, if your life is bound up in finding that one person that will make life worthwhile, then perhaps you bow to the God of relationships. Or perhaps your life is bound up in making a name for yourself in the marketplace and you bow to the God of success. Listen, we all worship something and what we worship, we become. For instance, If you worship financial security, you will become like a safe, cold and hard and impenetrable, unwilling to open up to bless anyone but yourself. We're all born with our hearts turned in towards ourselves. We're born with with hearts that are hard to God. And so this story of Pharaoh in his ever-hardening heart is actually meant to soften our hearts towards God. And here's what we're going to see this morning, that the Lord, that Yahweh alone is God. He's glorious, good, and worthy of our devotion, and therefore our hearts must soften to him. We're going to look at this under three headings. They are the plagues, the purpose, and the posture. Plagues, purpose, and posture. First, the plagues. There are ten plagues that come upon Egypt. We're going to cover the first nine. We're going to go really quickly through them. The tenth plague we're going to cover next week by itself. I want us to see that the plagues build in with intensity over time. And and so as we run through them quickly, try to pick up on on how they escalate and how Pharaoh responds. First, in chapter 7, verses 14 through 28, God displays his superiority with a very appropriate miracle, he turns the water of the Nile River into blood. The Nile River was the center of life in Egypt. Food, water, transportation, it all depended upon the Nile. No wonder the Egyptians worshipped the Nile River as their creator and sustainer. No less than three deities were associated with the Nile, Osiris and Nu and Happy. Yahweh totally humiliated these gods when he turned the Nile into blood. The fish died. Everything stank. There was no water to drink. In verse 22, we read that the magicians of Egypt did the same thing by their secret arts. But it's worth noting, they might have been able to somehow replicate this miracle, but they could not what? 
They couldn't undo the miracle. They, they couldn't turn the blood back into water. Now, what happened with Pharaoh? At the end of verse 22, we read, So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron. In Exodus chapter 8, see, you already made it to chapter 8. That was pretty quick, guys. Seven days later, Mo, uh, Yahweh, remember when we see the Lord, L-O-R-D in all caps in the Bible, that, that's the word Yahweh, that's God's name that's represented there. Yahweh instructs Moses to go into Pharaoh and say, let my people go or I will plague your con country with frogs. Now, I don't know about you, but Kermit the Frog, he's like one of my favorite Sesame Street characters. And um, that song about being green, man, that's like a masterpiece. But Muppet frogs are not what befell Egypt. We're talking about swarms of frogs everywhere, in your breakfast bowl, on your pillow. Once again, the magicians replicated the sign, but it only made matters worse. Now, guess what? In Egypt, frogs were sacred. The Nile and the frogs were symbols of fertility. There was even a goddess named Heket who had the head of a frog, poor thing. God is saying, God is saying, you like frogs? Huh. All right. Here you go. Have some frogs. Lots of frogs. You worship Heket in order to experience futility? Well, here they come. Now with this, Pharaoh did something new in verse 8. Here's what he did in, in chapter 8, verse 8. He says, he pleaded with Moses. And with, he asked Moses to plead with Yahweh to take away the frogs. And so Moses does what? He prays, and the frogs leave. But Pharaoh is unchanged. In verse 15 we read, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. The next plague is gnats everywhere. In the summertime, I like to go to North Sea Beach, you know, and have like a little picnic or a party there, right? Some of you guys do that. Gnats, when, if the wind's blowing, the gnats aren't a problem. But if it's a still evening, look out. It's miserable. It's like impossible to even like hold a conversation. It's just nonstop gnats everywhere. Imagine the, I imagine the plague of the gnats in Egypt was far worse. Tiny flying bugs in your ears, in your nose, in your eyes, in your mouth, everything covered in gnats. Now it's interesting, this miracle, the magicians of Pharaoh, they couldn't replicate it. The magicians even said to Pharaoh, listen what they said, they said, this is the finger of God. They're giving him truth to interact with. But we read that Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen. So Pharaoh did not humble himself after the gnats. He used Moses to intercede on his behalf, but then he shut the door back in Moses' face. So Yahweh does what? He sends some flies. We read in chapter 8, verse 24, that the whole land of Egypt was ruined by the swarms of flies, except there were no flies where? In Goshen, where the Israelites lived. This is a picture of both salvation and judgment. God's people were protected from his wrath. So Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron, and, and he says in verse 25, he says, Go sacrifice to your God, but within the land. It's a partial concession. You can sacrifice, but do it inside of Egypt. And Moses pushes back and he says, we must go three days journey out of Egypt to sacrifice in the wilderness. Pharaoh gives in a bid. He says, you can sacrifice in the wilderness, just don't go too far. And in verse 28, Pharaoh makes a request. He says, plead for me. 
And once again, Moses prays on Pharaoh's behalf. But then in verse 32, we read, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. The fifth plague, uh, all the livestock died. Imagine all these giant animals rotting everywhere. Everywhere except where? Goshen, where the Israelites dwell. Some of you participating. That's pretty good. There was no plague. God was demonstrating to Pharaoh that he blesses his own people while bringing judgment upon Pharaoh and his people. Now, Egypt, they worshipped a bull god. Crazy, huh? A bull god. At the temple in Memphis, there was said to be a live bull that was the incarnation of the god Apis. What we see here is that Yahweh is sovereign over all the gods of Egypt, even the bull god, Apis. Next came plagues of boils. I'm no doctor, but I I believe boils are painful, pus-filled bumps under the skin. Any nods from the doctors in the house? Maybe so. I don't know. It's interesting that Yahweh instructed Moses in order to bring about this miracle. He instructs Moses to take ashes and throw them into the air. It was the ashes that would produce the boils. Now consider this. It was customary in Egypt that the priests would throw ashes into the air as a sign of blessing. Now Moses throws the ash and it turns into a curse. Notice the plagues are getting harsher. People themselves are now being afflicted. The Egyptians no doubt would have turned to their gods for healing. Gods with names like Amon-Re and Thoth and Imhotep and Sekhmet. I don't know how you come up with the name Sekhmet. The plague was an attack on the false gods of Egypt. They could not heal people. The seventh plague was a the worst hailstorm in history. Have you ever been in a hailstorm, like a real, like a real crazy hailstorm? I have. Um, back in St. Louis, when I was a youth pastor, we used to take the senior high kids out to Colorado, and we'd go backpacking for a whole week out in the mountains. You just brought your own food and whatever. You just hiked in there, in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. One time, as we were out, we were, we were, we were, we were finished for the day, we were setting up our camp, and along comes a, a sudden thunderstorm, and we were about 10,000 feet up, and we followed the protocols for an electrical storm, which was spread out so one lightning strike doesn't kill everybody. That's good. And then the other thing was you would you would get on your like foam sleeping pad and you would kind of you know crouch down like that in case the electrical storm. Hopefully the the foam pad would protect you. And then the hail came. Now I've seen bigger hail, but I've never seen that much hail. I'm not kidding, within 15, 20 minutes, everywhere you could see hail, two to three inches deep. It's kind of beautiful. Our food pots on the stove were full of hailstones. And the hail hurt. I had my camp sandals on, so I'm, I'm all, I'm there all bunched up on my sleeping pad. And about every five to ten seconds, I, uh, hail would hit one of my toes, and, and I uh, I even started yell laughing. Right? You know what yell laughing is? It's like when it's so painful, it's comical. Ah, no, stop! Ow, you know, <laughs> it echoed all the way around the Rocky Mountains. Hail is not only painful; it's destructive. As we read in verse 25, that the hail struck down every plant in the field. All of the crops of Egypt, and listen, every man and beast in the field were struck down. Talk about calamity. 
But again, the hail had a limited effect on Pharaoh. Chapter 9. Wow, we're in chapter 9, verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, listen to what he says, this time I have sinned, the Yahweh is in, is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I've had too much of it. I will let you go, and, and you shall stay no longer. All right. What we come to realize as we dig in is that Pharaoh's actions are really all about himself. Pharaoh's repentance was a false repentance. You know, there is a vast difference between human remorse and godly repentance. The first pities oneself, the other pleases God. True repentance is a turning away from sin and confessing to God that you abhor it and that you wish it were gone forever by His grace from your life. If you're a Christian here, isn't it true that our repentance at times really isn't repentance? Maybe just sorry we got caught or that we looked bad in front of others, but we really didn't grieve or thrust upon ourselves, upon Christ for His mercy and His grace. Again, we read that Pharaoh didn't respond as he should. After Moses prayed and the hail ceased, we read in verse 34 and 35 that he sinned yet again, that's Pharaoh, and hardened his heart. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go. In response, Moses warned Pharaoh that if he did not let God's people go, he would send swarms of locusts and they would eat whatever the hail has left behind. Interesting, in chapter 10, verse 7, we see that the servants of Pharaoh, they're seeing the light. They come to Pharaoh and they plead, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? So Pharaoh... Hey, Moses, Aaron, come on back. All right, let's talk. Uh, you can go and serve Yahweh your God, but which ones are going to go? Moses says, well, all of us. Away from the old man down to the little kids. And Pharaoh says, no, 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 not so fast. The kids stay here. Moses pushes back. He says, that is not, that is not acceptable. And then Pharaoh says these words in verse 10 that are full of irony. See if you pick up on it. But he, that's Pharaoh, said to them, the Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. The Lord be with you if this ever happens. Guess what? It happens. The Lord was with them. So God sends the locusts and they covered the face of the whole land. The situation on the ground in Egypt had gotten quite bad. It's ominous now. There's no water, no livestock, no crops. And then came the last plague that we're going to cover today, which is darkness. Darkness is what? It's a sign of God's judgment. When the Apostle John wrote of Jesus coming into the world, he described it as light coming into a dark world, but the world prefers darkness and runs from the light. It's true, right? Don't you think? Most of us here probably not experienced complete darkness for an extended period of time. Even when we pull the blinds closed at night, there's still a little bit of light that sneaks in. Or, or then there's those tiny yellow, red, or blue dots on our devices in the room that somehow let off a glow. Moses stretched out his hands towards heaven and darkness came upon the land for three days. Three days. Darkness. The 
utter darkness would have been terrifying to the Egyptians. Why? For they worship the sun. One commentator writes, Every morning the rising of the sun in the east reaffirmed the life-giving power of Ammon Ray. The sunset represented death, and the sunrise offered them the hope of the resurrection. Tony Merida, whom I'm indebted to this morning, he writes this, he says, Moreover, the Pharaoh was known as the son of Re, the incarnation of Ammon Re. Ammon Re was the king of all of Egypt's gods. But Ammon Re, the biggest of all of Egypt's gods, could not help them. See, God is he's showing his supremacy, his glory over all of these false gods of Egypt. Once again, Pharaoh seems to become soft, and he tells Moses that people can go worship in the wilderness. But then Moses says, well, we're bringing our livestock along, and Pharaoh throws a conniption fit. He's just like, what? No way. Chapter 10 ends. Look at that. We're at the end of chapter 10. Saying, with Pharaoh saying, don't you ever come back, because if you do, you will die. Moses says, as you wish. The exit stage right. Did I get that right? Pharaoh's heart is hardened like concrete. He will not abandon his gods. He will not get off his throne. He will not bend a knee to Yahweh. Those are the plagues. Now, why all this? What is their purpose? God's purpose is that Pharaoh, all of Egypt, and even God's own people would know beyond a doubt that there is but one God. His name is Yahweh. Do you remember two weeks ago when we looked at Exodus chapter 5, Moses went in to talk to Pharaoh for the very first time. Moses spoke for God. He said this. He says, thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, let my people go. Remember Pharaoh's response? Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? Who's this Yahweh guy that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. He was speaking the truth. He did not know Yahweh. But there's more going on. Pharaoh didn't really want to know Yahweh. To know God is to be rightly related to God. It would mean that Pharaoh's life was no longer his own. That there was something, some being greater than him that he must bow to and direct his life around. Pharaoh didn't want, doesn't want that. And guess what? Most of us in this world, we don't want that either. So the purpose of these acts of judgment wasn't to get simply just to get God's people out of Egypt. Think about that. God could have worked a miracle and snuck them out in the middle of the night. He seems to have a way of doing that with large crowds of his people. No, these ever-increasing plagues were a sign of God's judgment upon Egypt through which the people would eventually know that there is but one true God and he belongs to the Israelites and his name is Yahweh. This comes up repeatedly in these chapters. Look at chapter 7, verse 4 and 5. I read from it earlier. Yahweh says, Pharaoh will not, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. I'm Yahweh. And I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out my people. God repeats this throughout the plagues. Chapter 7, verse 17. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Chapter 8, verse 10. So that you may know that there is no one 
like Yahweh. Chapter 8, verse 22. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there so that you may know that, listen, I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Chapter 9, verse 16. But for this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And then listen, but you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Chapter 9, verse 29. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is Yahweh's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. God is stern with Pharaoh. He says, you do not know me, but you will. He says, you're still exalting yourself over and against me. You seek your glory over against me and my glory. My glory is what's to fill the earth, not yours. A few years back, my kids will probably remember this. It's kind of embarrassing for them. A few years back, we were on uh, the beach in Southampton, and the, the entire Southampton lifeguard team was lined up for their annual team photo. <laughs> probably 20, 25 lifeguards in all their strength and beauty and glory. It was a serious photo shoot. That is, until I decided to photobomb the picture. Yeah, I did that. Your pastor. I exalted myself over and against the glory of the lifeguards who deserved it. And in a small way, I was robbing them of their glory. In a similar yet harmful way, Pharaoh's life is one giant photobomb on God's glory. God said, you're exalting yourself against me and my people. Consider this. If you insist on living your life as one who does not know the Lord, you too are living your life as a giant photobomb to God's goodness. This world is full of people who are robbing God of His glory by living their lives for their own glory. You're taking the life that God gave you, a life that was made to be enjoyed as His child, and you're robbing the glory from God. It's not a good thing. I mean, in fact, that's ultimately that's what sin is. It's the definition of sin. Sin isn't all the little naughty things that you do. Sin is living life in God's creation as if the Creator doesn't exist. And know this. You can say you believe in God and still function as if there is no God. Your life is really for you and your glory, and God's just there to give you gifts, make life good for you. It's possible you believe in God and yet still function as an atheist. And even Christians at times, we fall prey to this. We trust in Christ and we pledge our all to Him and His kingdom, yet we can find ourselves going back to the old way of the world, living for our own glory, for our own purposes, for our own plans. This prolonged interchange between Pharaoh and Moses was meant to repudiate all such living. It was too late for Pharaoh. 
His heart was hard towards God. He stood in opposition to God and His salvation for His people. Now, comprehend this though. At the same time, with the very same acts of God, as God's justice was coming upon Egypt, His mercy was coming upon His people. And that shouldn't surprise us. Everywhere there is the mercy of God, it's commingled with His justice. Cannot be any other way. Tony Merida makes this point. He says, the mercy and justice of God are always mingled. And the most important glorious act of mercy and justice happened when God put forth His Son on the cross. God passed over us and punished Jesus in our place. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, was punished in place of us. He was crucified instead of us. He took God's wrath on behalf of us. Listen, here's what Merida writes. He says, everyone will be judged. Either Jesus took your judgment at the cross or something worse than the plagues is coming your way as you face the judgment. For believers, we rejoice because through Christ there is no condemnation. Jesus took the curse. He experienced darkness. The darkness that happened at the cross and the darkness in the tomb for, for three days. By His death and resurrection, we who deserve death have nothing but God's mercy for all eternity. So, that's the plagues. We've seen the purpose. Now for our posture. Yahweh told Pharaoh that through these judgments of the plagues, he would eventually come to know Yahweh. But interestingly, these plagues weren't just to soften Pharaoh's heart. They were also intended to soften the hearts of God's people, not just back then, but through all generations. Am I making this up? Where am I pulling this from? Well, just look at chapter 10, verse 1. Here's what we see. God says, the Lord says to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I've dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them. Why? that you may know that I am Yahweh. Yahweh is telling Moses that future generations are to look back on the signs of judgment against the Egyptians that brought about the deliverance of God's people so that future generations will know what? That God is Yahweh. The covenant promise-keeping faithful God who's there for His people, who is supreme over all the other gods, and how foolish it would be to worship something else. And if you know the story of Exodus and Deuteronomy, God's people need this continual reminder because God finds that His own people are stiff-necked and hard-hearted. If it's true with the exodus from Egypt, how much more shall we in this generation look back on the cross and know that God is Yahweh? That our God is the one true God 
who is sovereign over all, that our God is supreme and glorious and patient and loving, that He is the covenant promise-keeping God, just as His name describes. And so what should be our posture? As we look back at the cross, what we experience is what? It's a, when we look at the cross, how can we not experience a softening of our hearts towards God and His glory and His goodness and His rule over us? And check this out. When your heart becomes soft, your life gets reordered properly. You get off the throne of your own kingdom and you exalt God in His rightful place in your life. So let us look to the cross of Christ so that it may change our posture. May we have a posture of humility as we look at the cross and see that it was for our sin that Christ died there, that he was in the darkness of those tomb, the tomb for three days. Jesus took our judgment so that we could experience God's mercy. And so in humility, let us love God for his steadfast love of us. Our posture should be one of reverence. We're made to revere God, to glory in Him, to honor Him, to bless Him, to exalt Him above all other earthly good. May we not be content simply look at God as a vending machine of gifts to enjoy. But maybe look to God as our greatest gift to enjoy. And may we also be in a position, posture of obedience, we should long to see all that is still sinful in us and broken in us to be put off. As Paul says, to put to death the deeds of the sinful flesh that still entangles us. That we should see obedience to Christ not as drudgery, but as a delight. That holiness would be our loving desire. And then, of course, we should be in a posture of worship. If we become what we worship, and I do believe we do, if we become what we worship, then when we worship our perfect, loving Savior, we become like Him. Oh, to be like Christ. And remember, that's the promise of Yahweh our God. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would continue to work your good work in us to, to soften our hearts. We thank you for being able to look back generations ago to see your power and your might, your supremacy over this earth. There is no God but you, God. And you are Yahweh, a covenant, promise-keeping, faithful God who is there for his people. Even when we fail, you do not fail us. And with this truth, we adore you. And we worship you. May we become like you. Amen.